Welcome to Book to Where Two Guys Tell You About the Books They're Reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Olivia Snedna. This week is an interview episode with Rob Hart. Yeah, I wanted to like play into that a little bit, but you know what? It's just cool enough that we have Rob on. Rob's forthcoming novel will be out um, about a week from when you're listening to this. It's called The Warehouse, in case you live under a rock and haven't heard of it. So we're going to have Rob on. We're going to talk a little bit about The Warehouse, and then you can come back next week for our actual review of The Warehouse. Yeah, this is a, I think this is a first for us, uh, which I'll have to mark in my little database, um, where we're actually interviewing the author before we record a review. I don't think we've done that before. We haven't, but we've read the book. But we so did, we still yeah. haven't like interviewed him before we read this. So. Yeah. We were still prepared. Um, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So two weeks of Rob Hart for you guys this week, interview next week, book review. And uh, that's it. Let's talk to Rob. Rob, thanks so much for uh, coming back on and talking to us on booked. It's been too long, uh, but it's always great to talk to you. So thanks. Yeah. Yeah. As always, thank you for having me. Hey, so we haven't had a chance to tell the listeners about the warehouse yet. So how about you do a little bit of that? Sure. Uh, you know, I think the, the the easiest way to describe it is it's basically like 1984, but instead of big government, it's big business. Uh, but it imagines that one company, a totally fake company, I made it up completely from my imagination. It's not based <laughs> on anything. Uh, one company completely takes over the American retail economy. And they they build a uh, these facilities that are basically uh, live work facilities, kind of like Foxconn has in Asia. And so you don't just work there; you also live there in dormitory housing. So, you know, you basically never go home anymore. And uh, and the book follows three characters: uh, the the CEO who announces that he's dying, which is like the first line of the book, so that's not a spoiler. Um, but it's this really big change. It's this big game change to the economy because he's like this messianic figure who's suddenly, you know, not going to be with the world anymore. And then, uh, and then two people who actually work inside the facility, um, a security guard whose business was ruined by this large corporation called cloud and a woman who is a corporate spy who is hired to sort of suss some things out about the company. Um, understanding that it's a completely made up company. Yes. Not based on a real company. <laughs> um, there's, there's a, there's a great part in where you like, you have a dedication and then back in your acknowledgements, you kind of expand on that a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about where the dedication comes from? Yeah. So, uh, so I dedicated the book to a woman named Maria Fernandez and, uh, and I never met Maria. There's this incredible story about her in the New York Times uh, that I, I've read so many times at this point, I practically have it memorized. But so uh, Maria worked at three Dunkin Donuts locations part time, you know, like presumably so none of them would have to give her benefits. And she would drive between the three locations and she would sleep in her car. And in, in 2014, during one of those times, she was sleeping in behind a gas station uh, in her car and a gas can overturned and she suffocated. And, you know, she was struggling to pay $550 a month on a basement apartment in Newark. And that same year, the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts earned $10 million. And look, you know, none of us would say no to $10 million, right? I mean, that's, that's a lot of money, but no one needs $10 million to survive. You know, no one needs to earn $10 million in one year. I don't care how fucking talented you are. I don't care how much you raise the company's profits. 
Because at the end of the day, the cost of that compensation was Maria having to sleep in her car. And that story really, really stuck with me as I was writing it because, you know, uh, and it talks about in the time story about how there was this homeless guy who hung out around one of the Dunkin' Donuts where she worked and she would give him money and she would give him food. And he showed up to her funeral to pay his respects. I bet the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts didn't fucking show up, you know? And it's like, and, and, and for what? Like, like his $10 million, what did that buy him? Like his 12th vacation home? Good for him, you know? Uh, I, I, I've always kind of had a dim view of capitalism, but writing this book sort of set me off a little bit. And, and Maria's story stuck with me so strongly that when it came time to, to do the dedication, I was like, oh, yeah, no, it's got to be to her. Yeah, that's uh, pretty powerful. I was not um, familiar with it until, you know, the afterward. I saw the dedication. I saw a name. I didn't know if this was a cousin or close friend of yours, you know. So when I read it afterwards, uh, especially after having read the book, you know, it takes on kind of a whole a whole different meaning. So um, dedications, you know, you basically get, you know, maybe one or two per book. And I think yours was uh, was pretty well placed. You know, it's I, I mean, I also had the luxury of it's it's my seventh book and I've already dedicated to like my parents <laughs> and my wife and my daughter and my publisher and my agent. And, you know, I, I just I, I to be perfectly honest, uh, I, I was almost a little conflicted on it because I don't want to make it seem like I'm co-opting her story. Uh, but I do think her story is important. And I think it's the kind of story that can easily get lost in the shuffle. So, I mean, if. If, if even a few people see the dedication, read the acknowledgments and, and, and who she was, and then just look into her life a little bit and like find that Times article, I'd, I'd be really happy to find that out. All right. We've covered that clearly this is a work of fiction that um, a, you know was created ultimately in your imagination based on no yes. reality whatsoever. But um, <laughs> has, no there real been any, has there been any pushback from anybody that might have confused this company with any current companies? No, 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 no. Um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, we're, 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 we're playing a bit of a game here where it's like, you know, it's the same reason that I thought the book was kind of unpublishable because it's, it's critical of Amazon's business model. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's what people keep on bringing up when we talk about the book. They're like, oh, you know, cloud is based on Amazon. And the thing that I'm trying to, to underscore is that Amazon is not the disease, it's a symptom. You know, uh, it's it's a much bigger problem when you look at Walmart and Facebook and Google and Apple and, and basically every major corporation in America is like pretty bad. You know, we, we've reached the point where it's really difficult to have any kind of ethical consumption under capitalism anymore. And so, you know, it's easy to sort of call it the Amazon book, but I, I think the problem is sort of much bigger than that. And really in terms of pushback, no. No, there hasn't been anyone who's been like, you know, oh, no, you can't do this. Like, I again, like I thought people were not going to be interested. We almost went to auction on the book and uh, we ended up selling it in a preempt, which is basically uh, Crown at Random House was like, here is a giant pile of money. We're not having an auction. We want this fucking book. And uh, that is not even close to what I expected was going to happen. And so in pre preparation for talking to you, obviously, one of the things that um, I was thinking about and having finished the book and stuff is like how easy it is to, you know, correlate it to specifically Amazon. But I think throughout the book and without spoiling, spoiling anything, you did a pretty good job of, of giving characteristics and traits of uh, 
obviously big tech companies like you mentioned before uh and and really kind of making it a what if company as well so i I guess it would be reductive to say like this is a direct take on amazon because i i feel having read it that you did a pretty good job of sharing the love with uh, all of the corporations Well, you know, I mean, frankly, a lot of my research was into Walmart uh, because Amazon has not been around for that long. They're a very secretive company, so it's hard to get information out of them. And uh, Walmart's been around since the 1960s. And there's been several really good books written about their rise in their business model. And so that was that was like my grounding. Like, that's where I got the majority of, of my my intel for this book. And then, you know, everything else was kind of just like reading the news. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. You kind of touched on research, which is something we wanted to talk about. So I'm going to move it up the list a little bit. So uh, clearly you've addressed that Walmart was one of the kind of models that you studied for this. The book takes place like in the, I'll say, near future. Without spoiling anything, how much, um, how do I say this? Like how much scientific accuracy is in some of the things? So clearly there are things that exist in this book that don't necessarily exist in in wide use today you know that was so 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 that was interesting um you know there's a bit at the end that's like that sort of like crosses that chasm into like you know like really speculative sci-fi but Mm -hmm. other than that uh my instinct always was whenever i felt like things were getting too techy was to scale back you know like um like for example everyone at this facility wears a tracking watch and the tracking watch's job is to sort of, you know, monitor your health and and send you in the right direction and help you do your job. And, you know, I, I, I could have, not that they fit in the book, but just as an example, like laser beams would not have been a good thing to write about because people don't know what, how laser beams work or, or they're not really familiar with them. But a tracking watch, even if you don't want, wear a tracking watch, you kind of have the gist of what it is. So I was really, my, my instinct was always to make the technology feel as grounded as possible and as familiar as possible, because that was the only way to sort of give the reader an entry point to the story. How about, there's some biological stuff, I guess is the only way I can put it. And I really don't <laughs> want to spoil this. So if anybody is, is, you know, has read the book and then comes back and finds this interview, uh, address a little bit about, about some of the, um, more natural elements that are futuristic. Is there research into some of that stuff? That was actually, uh, that was based on an article, like, and apparently it was a real technology in Japan. And then it, it looks like it might've been a hoax. But <laughs> I, I, and, and, and I know that sounds really vague to anyone who hasn't read the book, but when they will, when they read the book, they'll, they'll, they'll understand it. And uh, it was just like this little thing that kind of stuck with me. And, and I, I thought it was like, it was actually kind of like a late addition to the book. I was like, oh, it would be really funny to add this. I'm going to add this with the assumption that any reasonable editor is going to ask me to take it out. And then uh, everyone just fucking loved it. They were like, this is a great detail. I'm like, fuck you all, you gross motherfuckers. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it, it's like I said, I just I, I read the news a lot and that just popped up at one point. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that can go in. That's awesome. And that's so one thing I'll say about having having read the book is that uh, there were plenty of of surprises and twists that I wasn't expecting that being one of them. And so 
um it was it was nice that you were you were you were hitting at a pretty good pace like um things that i just didn't expect at all which has nothing to do with the question i'm about to ask cool. which is um <laughs> So we talked a little bit about the research and the dedication and stuff like that. But is there anything about your inspiration for this book that doesn't have something to do with what we've already talked about? Like, was there any other thing that made you want to do this or made it come together the way it did? Well, I mean, in in a general sense, like I've always been kind of like an anti-establishment kind of person. So I feel like I was eventually going to get to this point. And even with my previous books, like, you know, like the bad guys and the woman from Prague, it's like a fucking bank is at the top of the food chain and, and, and Potter's Fields, which is the last Ash book, like it deals with the heroin crisis. But I make sure to point out that the heroin crisis really needs to be laid at the foot of pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, it was always kind of probably where I was going to end up, which was sort of doing like, you know, speculative sort of, you know, fuck large institutions kinds of books. But uh, I, I, do, I, I can tell you the exact nexus point. Um, there was an article that ran in Mother Jones uh, in 2012 by Mac McClelland, and it was called I Was a Warehouse Wage Slave. And she went and she got a job in a fulfillment center and just wrote about how shitty it was. And, uh, and, and it wasn't just that it was shitty. It's that jo- people were lined up around the corner for these jobs because these companies are setting up in economically depressed areas where you know they could basically do whatever the fuck they want because they're the only game in town and i remember reading that article and being like shit there is a book here and just filing it away and it's it's the thing that i just as i was writing the ash books you know i just kept on coming back to and i would drop notes and 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 links and articles and all this stuff in there and i finally got to a point where you know i i had this this real fear of writing it because I was like, on one hand, I just don't know if I'm smart enough to write this. I don't know if I'm a good enough writer because this is a really heavy subject. And the other part of me was like, if I don't do this now, someone else is going to get here. Like literally, like like Mm -hmm. someone else is going to latch onto this idea and then I'm going to be fucked. So uh, I, I honestly, I think part of the success of this was the timing. Yeah. Speaking of timing, um, just want to get your take on something completely outside this book. So um, Amazon yeah. tried to move to New York recently. You are from New York. They did. Um, there yeah. seems to be oh, yeah, there seems to be two mindsets. <laughs> so there seems to be people in New York that are very happy that that fell apart, and there seems to be people in New York who are really upset that it fell apart. Might we get your take on it? Oh yeah, like I, I was I was munching on popcorn during that whole fucking thing. <laughs> um, so so that actually really gets to the root of what I think is the problem with the the, the relationship between large corporations and and government. Uh, because what happened was the mayor and the governor were basically like Amazon, you can do literally anything you want. Like you can urinate on our chests, and if if you move here and create jobs. Um, <laughs> And and that's you know, but but that's Amazon's thing. That that's every large corporation that's now building a headquarters. That's every fucking stadium. Like stadiums are a good example of this, where they're like, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna invigorate your neighborhood, and then they build like this giant luxury stadium, but make sure that it's completely walled off from the shitty communities that are surrounding it. I shouldn't shouldn't say shitty communities. That's not fair because those communities have been sort of driven into the ground by economic factors like billionaires making fucking lavish stadiums. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, so, yeah, uh, the governor and and the mayor were offering all these givebacks to Amazon and and they were supposed to be creating X number of jobs. But 
you know, there was a big question of what those jobs were because they were trying to convince people like, oh, yeah, you know, Amazon's going to go into the local housing projects and hire the people who live there and teach them how to code and give them six figure jobs. And that's not what it was. There was a rush on real estate in Long Island City from people who worked at other Amazon facilities in other parts of the country. Like they were just relocating staff there. They probably would have created some new jobs there, too. But, uh, you know, they were doing it in a neighborhood where, you know, our mass transit system is falling apart and there were no guarantees that they were going to do anything to bolster that. It was just it, it was stupid. And and all it is is so the mayor and the governor could be like, I created one hundred and twenty five thousand jobs. Aren't I a fancy boy? Like, that's it. Like, that's the <laughs> trade off is is, you know, business businesses come in. And they basically strip mine cities, you know, we're not going to pay income tax, we're not going to, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do that, and you're going to let us do it, because we're going to let you parade around as job creators, and then you can get reelected. And it's very much a one hand washes the other kind of thing. And, you know, Amazon is still actually scouting locations in New York City, because it was never about the givebacks. It was just about they don't like being told no. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you definitely have a side, <laughs> so that's it. Sounds like yeah. <laughs> I figured you might. It didn't occur to me until you know we we're talking about this, and I was like, wait a minute, a major company tried to open something up by you. Yeah, man. God, that was that was a weird, and it was funny too because um, like the, the, this is getting really really wonky, but uh, the governor set it up in such a way that it would get around the the normal land use process and uh, around the city council because the city council has to do an approval for the uh -huh. the land rights stuff that they needed. So he did an end run around them, and then the Senate Democrats uh, like appointed this guy to like there was this really obscure three person board on the state level that would yay or nay it. And so the Senate Democrats appointed someone who was against the project to kill it. So basically, they then didn't and run around him. And so <laughs> as a political junkie watching this, it was like it was like my fucking dream. I was like, oh, my God, the fucking gamesmanship here is incredible. And like no one gives a shit about this except for like me and all the other weird fucking political wonks in the city. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was fun to watch. So it's funny because like watching that specifically play out and I was very much a casual uh, observer of the situation is there's like bidding wars from different cities. And it reminds me a lot of like uh, those temporary sports things like Olympics and stuff like that. And um, oh, I can't remember the year. I think it was for Chicago was in the running for the Olympics one year, like in the last decade or so. And I was living in the city at the time. I'm in the suburbs now. But at the time, I was like, man, I don't want the Olympics to come here because you hear all these horror stories of how, like, awful, like, and devastating, like, an Olympic um, hosting is to, like, the city that the, that's hosting it. And yeah. then, like, these weird statistics, like, like the the occurrences of, like, sex trafficking and stuff in major events, like the super bowl or 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 the olympics and stuff just like skyrocket and it's like why would anybody want this stuff in their in their community yeah yeah and it just it so rarely pays off you know it was um God, i don't even remember who the fuck was in the last super bowl um but the so, someone did an article about how <laughs> like the 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 stadium that they played in was supposed to be like this savior for the community and it's done literally nothing for the community because it's like like there's this idea that like people are going to the stadium and then like they're going to hang out and they're going to have dinner in the neighborhood or they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And like, no, they're fucking not. They're going to drive to the stadium. 
go to the indoor parking garage, walk into the stadium, do all the shit they want to do and immediately drive home. You know, um, yep. th- this, this is an issue that we deal with all the time on Staten Island because um, Staten Island being sort of the, uh, the, the, the least cool of the five boroughs uh, and, and it's this constant struggle um, to sort like people are always like, oh, we have to market to people off of Staten Island. We have to get people who take the ferry for like the free ride to like get off the ferry and like like come to our arts organizations, our restaurants. And it's like it's never going to fucking happen. Like I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with this now because uh, I'm, I'm trying next year to set up a book festival on the islands because we don't have like we have one used bookstore in a Barnes and Noble. We don't really have a good indie. You know, we don't have mm. a, a big writing community. And me and some other writers are trying to build it up a little bit. And so we think a book festival would be a good sort of, you know, starting ground for that. And, and one of the first conversations is they were like, oh, we have to get people from off the island. I'm like, no, we don't. We need to market to people on Staten Island and, and market this as a community thing. And if people c- want to come from off island, fucking great, you know, but like the most important thing is our community. We shouldn't be trying to sell to people who are like may or may not come. And uh, we're getting way off the rails right now. <laughs> oh, this is all good stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very close to the, I guess the message of the book. And that's actually what's going to be the next question is, um, so there's some of the obvious stuff like the the similarities to companies and and stuff like that. Um, if you if you could say like kind of what you hope people would get out of this book, what would you say that is? Uh, I think that I, I would love it if people were a little bit more mindful about their their economic impact. Um, I think that there's an empathy gap in the economy uh, where we've all sort of collectively decided that our comfort is worth someone else's discomfort. And I think a really good example of that is iPhones um, or, or smartphones in general. You know, like even if we don't know the specifics, we all know, uh, at least in broad strokes, that our phones were manufactured in facilities where the working conditions would be either inappropriate or outright illegal in the U.S. But we buy the phones anyway because we don't have to look the villager from Shenzhen who's working a 12-hour day, six days a week around noxious chemicals in the eye. You know, we can just get our phone and we can play Candy Crush on the subway and we can we can go on with our lives. And, you know, I, I, I was really hoping that people would kind of think a little bit about that. And, and the thing that has been really, really heartening to me is uh, I've been reading my Goodreads reviews uh, because we, we've just been going to like, you know, comic book conventions and stuff. And like we've really been getting the galleys out there. I know you're not supposed to read them, but I've been reading them. And uh, a lot of people have been saying like, wow, you know, like this is making me rethink my economic footprint. And I'm like, fuck yeah. Like, like literally that's all I could have hoped for. And like, people seem to be kind of keying into that. And, and I, I, I could not be happier. So, and, 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 you know, and, and I want to be clear about something too. I have an iPhone, so like, I'm not better than anyone. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I've made that Faustian deal too for, for, for comfort, but you know, maybe thinking about it is a good first step. I think that's the key to what um, the book got me, me feeling uh, is that, um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm very aware of this in my day-to-day life um, because of where I work, which I won't say where I work. Um, people just not taking the time to think kind of critically about the things that are happening around them um, because it's just effort like that they don't want to give. 
Uh, and I know I didn't say that very eloquently. You said it much better, but like, that's kind of one of the things that really came about for me was that, yeah, I, I'm the guy that sees the headline of an article and I, and I figure, well, that's enough information. I don't read the article. And, and yeah, it, this, that kind of applies to what you're talking about as far as like, um, consumerism and your economic footprint is like, it's the thing it's cheap. I'm going to buy it. It's going to get delivered to me and I'm not even going to consider the story behind that product or, or whatever it happens to be. Which is kind of the key to it, right? Because, you know, I, I can sit here for like the next hour and just like depress the shit out of you guys with like all these terrible <laughs> facts and figures and like all these horrible anecdotes that I read and, and you might get angry and, and, and anger is good, but you know, I think empathy is better. And, and I think a story sits with you differently than data does. So, you know, the, the, the way I've been explaining it to people is that uh, it's like when my daughter doesn't want to eat her broccoli, uh, so I stick it in her mac and cheese and, and we both win. Uh, you know, she gets palatable <laughs> meal and, and she also gets her vitamins. And, you know, that's why I thought, you know, let me do this. Let, let, let me do my fuck capitalism book, but sort of wrapped in the language of a thriller. And, and you're sort of there's almost kind of like a seduction to it where it's like you're you're lulling the reader into a false sense of sense of security where it's like hey here's this fun crazy story that you're going to enjoy and then you get to the end and you're like oh by the way everything is fucking terrible all right let's transition slightly away from capitalism and talk about like the writing of the actual book so yeah. i, I want to commend you first and then i'm going to have a little bit of a question yeah um i'll take it i was fully prepared so there are a lot of characters in this book we do see three points of view but there there are you know uh, you know there's significantly more characters than that in the book and I started it and I thought, okay, and this is just honest. Here we go. We have a clear villain and then we have some heroes and whatever. But what I found fascinating, the more I read into the book is that regardless, I, clearly we know which side you're on in this book, right? Like we just had this long conversation about it, how relatable um, you made all the characters. So you could have done this in a way in which a lot of fiction writers do where this is the big bad. This person is a is a good person through and through, and this person is a good person through and through. Your characters were really conflicted. Um, they all had a point of view that that was you know reasonable, even if it was wrong. Like you did a really great job, kind of expressing the character motivations in a way that didn't just paint them black and white. So I guess my question uh, to that is, how much conscious effort did you put? into that or did you just naturally write characters that that were flawed and super relatable so here's what i'll say from this conversation i think anybody could think gibson is clear he's the the um, founder and ceo of cloud right yeah that he's a really just a big bad guy right but you made him fairly relatable like his explanations for how he got to where he is and the decisions he makes i i felt um, were something that a person would think and made him, you could have very easily just made him the super villain of the book. And I guess what I'm saying is it didn't feel like you did, like you did a good job showing his growth into what it is. And I get the feeling that that probably took a little bit of work for you, especially after this conversation that we've had about mega corporations and who would run something like that. Well, so, so, so the funny thing about all that is that I, I knew I Paxton and Zinnia I had really early on, like they were they were right there at the beginning. I knew that I wanted to have one character who was going to be sort of like a company man who had been, was kind of aggrieved, but also was like one of those people who just you know 
toes the line and and could be sort of gaslighted into into you know buying the company Kool Aid and all that stuff. And I knew that I wanted to have one character be a little bit more cutting and a little bit more able to see through the bullshit. And so that just felt like a strong balance for me where, you know, I, I, I could play these two characters off each other where, you know, one, one, one is the company man and one is the, uh, the outsider and, and it, and it just was not working, you know, like it just, it didn't feel, it, it felt like it needed to be bigger than that. And, and what I finally came around to understanding was that cloud is so big uh, that it's practically a character, and because it was practically a character, it needed someone to represent it. So, so why not just add the CEO into the mix? And so, it was a function of like he's he, he's he's explaining his he's basically litigating his legacy in, in blog posts as the story goes on, and, and until we finally meet him in person. But um, I really needed his voice in there. And once I once I clicked with that voice and w- once I heard it and once I put it into the book, I was like, fuck, the entire thing made sense to me. And and this is where we get into like that weird fugue state of writing a novel where it's like, I wish I had some kind of like actionable explanation for, for, for it. But it's just like, it felt like once I had his voice in the mix, the whole thing just like, I mean, I wrote the book and like, I wrote the first section over the course of like a couple of months and then I wrote the rest of the book in like six months. Like the whole thing just really clicked for me. And, um, you know, I, I think there's a degree to which the three characters are sort of, they really are like three elements of my personality. Um, you know, I think Zinnia is closest to my voice in the sense that she's a, she, she's an acerbic dickhead. Um, and she's kind of an asshole and that's sort of my wheelhouse, but you know, Paxton is the part of me that, you know, can be afraid and can sometimes be the yes man and can sometimes, you know, make excuses for bad situations because it's comfortable or it's easy. And, you know, with Gibson, it was sort of, uh, the, 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 there's a single sentence he says in the book that, that really, that his entire character just hangs on like a portrait. And so I'm, I'm not going to say what it is, but, um, it's just, it was tapping into my own feelings of, you know, confidence and, and sort of, you know, look, um, obviously the game changed after the book sold because it, it sold at a level I never thought it would, but you know, uh, there, there was certain, there, there certainly been points in my life where I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm good at what I do. I'm, I'm a hard worker. I accomplish things. And, you know, those moments were sometimes fleeting, but it was kind of trying to key into that feeling of, of being like, you know, I mean, also like I'm a white straight dude with all my hair. So, you know, I'm already pretty privileged as it is. <laughs> But um, yeah, it, it was finding that thread of of sort of you know confidence that 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 is not always easy for writers to come by, but um, but we but we all have it to a degree, like like ego basically. Like I, I was tapping into my ego and trying to figure out what that would look like because you know Gibson's like he, the the best villains really are the ones who don't believe they're villains. You know he believes he's a hero, and so that's that's a much more interesting dynamic than you know some guy who knows that he's doing shitty things. Yeah, I think that uh, that was one of the things uh, as as I started reading it, I was texting with, you know, friends who are aware of the book and wanted to know, like, my my feelings on it and stuff. And that was one of the things that I w- was explaining besides, like, the basic how I thought the mechanics of a story were going was that, like, um, that level of nuance and, and like Livius was saying. So, um, yeah, I agree. I think that went very well. Um, one thing that the book really made me feel, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, um, with the way that you uh, wrote kind of like the day-to-day life of of being in one of these mother cloud 
kind of locations was that I really started to feel that kind of pressure of, of being a worker there. Uh, so I, I felt like I was very much in the position of someone who was working in this place and, f and starting to feel the effects, the negative effects that, that you talked about with like the, the dedication and everything. So was that intentional or was I just really just getting into it? <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. I mean, that's, you know, and it goes back to the empathy thing, you know, like the whole point of it was that I wanted people to sort of get that sense of, you know, uh, and again, it's, it's sort of like a fantastical version of a fulfillment center, but at the end of the day, it's a fulfillment center and you know how it kind of sucks to have this quota that's impossible to meet this monotonous job where it's just, you spend hours and hours at a time, just like, picking shit off shelves and putting them on conveyor belts and then your break finally arrives and it's like oh great like I, I i'm a fucking mile and a half from the break room i can't even eat my lunch you know right um uh, i th i think that's you know uh, e even even if you don't work in a fulfillment center even if you don't do physical labor i think that we can all sort of understand the feeling of our jobs wanting so much of us you know like i have friends who are afraid to take their vacation time because they feel like they're not going to look properly dedicated and you know, there's this expectation now that we're supposed to check our email on nights and weekends when, you know, fuck that, that's supposed to be time for us. But, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of gaslighted into this idea of, you know, well, at least you have a job, you know, like even if your job sucks, at least you're getting a paycheck. Right. And it's like, why should we be happy about having a job if the job is shitty? And what I was hoping was that, you know, even if people didn't necessarily have that feeling, like even if people didn't have that direct correlation of like, I've done that job, they can at least find things that were familiar and they could be like, I, I may not do that job, but I know what that feels like. Um, very briefly, very, very briefly for one shift, um, 20 ish years ago, I, uh, I worked for a temp company and they sent me for, um, to a job at Motorola making phones. Okay. So uh, I sat, you know, they, they took me to one place, like the very first thing they did, they were like, put the sticker on all the phones that get shoved to you in these bins. So for like an hour, I'm literally just placing a sticker on a phone. And then they're like, we're going to show you how to assemble the antenna. So for like an hour, I put the, this is when antennas would come up on phones when you'd have to raise them, uh, you know? Yeah, the, the TikTok generation has no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, right exactly. Now. So I did probably like six different positions over the whatever it was like a nine hour shift. And I thought like I was convincing myself like, okay, like, like the money is okay. And, and I could do this or whatever. And, you know, I'm, I'm with the, the lady who's kind of been um, showing me how to do these things and checking in on me. <clears throat> she says, uh, Hey, uh, you know, uh, how would you think of tonight? And I go, well, you know, it was okay. I thought it was really mundane, but I was like, all right, you know, I broke it up into chunks. She goes, oh yeah. She goes, tonight was actually pretty hectic. Normally we have you at the same station for three months at a time. And this, <laughs> I, that was it. I was done. I literally, this was a job. It was second shift. It was midnight. I called the temp agency and said, Hey, I'm not going back there tomorrow. Like, let me know when I can pick up my check for this job. And there's a thing there, man. Like, like I, I tried to convince myself it was the right thing. And then when she, I just pictured myself just installing that same antenna for eight and a half hours a night, like how it just wasn't doable. And there are jobs out there like that. I mean, I know there's less and less with automation, but that's somebody's reality. Like there are people who work there that I'm sure had worked there for years doing the same oh, yeah. thing over and over and over again. So it, I can see how that, how that literally winds up killing you slowly. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, and and there's a degree to where it's like not everyone's job can be as as you know, fucking exciting, glamorous as writing novels, but uh, because someone somewhere has to clean out the porta potties at at at, at you know at. I, I can't even think of a good music festival. This fucking analogy fell apart on me. Um, but, but, you know, Lollapalooza was, is happening last weekend in Chicago. So. There we go. Cool. Um, Lollapalooza. Um, but yeah, you know, like not everyone's job can be exciting, but it's also like, you know, there, there, there's this, I don't know. I think we, we kind of like overconsume goods and, and we, we sort of, uh, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about my own consumption and, and a couple of times now I've gone to buy something and I'm like, I don't need this. I'm just not going to get it because there's just going to be another fucking thing that's in my house that's going to take up space, and one day I'm going to die and someone's going to have to like throw out, and it's just not worth it. And um, yeah, you know, I I I think it's easy to sort of again like, you know, you didn't work in a fulfillment center, but you worked in a in a similar kind of environment, so you were able to make that that connection. I just want to put it out there that um. I don't find writing a novel to be exotic. It would be very, that <laughs> <laughs> would be a nightmare for me. So. Oh God. Yeah, no, I, I was being but, facetious. Um, I know. I'm just... it's, it's, it's the worst job ever. Well, because no, and, it and, sounds terrible. Well, no, I, and, and here, here's the funniest thing about this entire, uh, all, all the fucking lunacy around the warehouse is that I really thought it was the worst fucking thing I'd ever written. Um, I, I was in Singapore when I finished the novel. Um, my wife was getting a master's and they were doing a study abroad thing. And they had a really, really, really generous partner rate where I can pay to come out with the class and like be on the plane and, and like go like get myself in trouble while she was doing school stuff. And so, I, and, and I don't really sleep well on planes anyway. So I was getting near the end of the book. I'm like, this is perfect. I'm going to have like 17 hours of fucking flight time. And then I'm going to have a couple of days to myself. So I, I just edited like crazy on the plane, got in Singapore, you know, first day, like took my laptop, went down to Chinatown and just wandered around and like stop in a cafe or stop in a bar. And I finally finished the book and I sent it to my agent and I said, with an apology. And I was like, this, this, this is a fucking mess. I don't, I don't get it. You know, I don't think it works. I just, but, but, and he had been saying like, semi pages, semi pages, semi pages. And I'm like, you know, at this point, like, I just need an outside opinion because I'm past the point of being able to, to objectively look at this. And he writes me back and he's like, I have notes for you, but this is like the least amount of notes that I've ever asked of anybody. And, and so my first thought was, and, and, and it's a really ungenerous thought because it's not true, but I was like, shit, do I have a bad agent? because <laughs> this was the first thing that we were working on together and and i was like like does, does does he have no notes because he has no editorial insight and and he ended up the the notes he gave me were very very good and very insightful and um definitely made the book better and um and then we submitted the book and i'm like well no one's gonna buy it and then and then yeah we almost go to auction and then um and then i was like well it's not going to sell outside the united states because it's too american and then like we sold in like 20 something countries and so like the whole thing was just a, a a progressive series of like ever absurd dominoes dude i have not seen an amazon locker in the united states but i totally saw one in paris so i think i think they probably get it in other places too yeah, no, I mean uh and, and some of the countries they're they're going nuts for it. I mean, you know, uh I, I'm I'm going like Germany, Jesus, Germany made a fucking hardcover galley. The galley Whoa. is a hardcover. 
And and not only that, it's over 500 pages because so there, there's a lot of short chapters in the book and there's a lot of like jumping between perspectives. So like and, and you know, you guys probably saw like the chapters kind of run together, whereas in the German edition, they right. did page breaks. So like starting on a new page for each chapter, which added like another 200 pages to the book. And um, uh, and, and, and it's like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the pages are like tip like they're 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 dyed red. And it's like man it's just it's it's a piece of fucking art like they sent it to me and i just sat there with it for a couple of minutes like i can't believe someone fucking made this out of a thing that i wrote you know and uh like the the uk next week like they're going nuts over it like they they said like i'm one of the lead books for the year and i'm like okay guys thanks no pressure i mean it would be really funny if this was your greatest commercial success the book questioning capitalism right hey you know i'll take it um <laughs> <laughs> and it's also uh, at, at the same time too like i i feel like if this is if this is my wheelhouse now like and it's just about me writing like thrillers that like take apart like you know large institutions i am fucking there for that shit you know like the the, oh, yeah. the, the one i'm working on now is very anti-government uh that's my that's my next target so we'll see we'll see if i can i can actually uh make <laughs> lightning strike twice you've touched on some of this already but tell us about some of the the you know the biggest differences in transitioning to uh such a large publisher your previous novels were all kind of done on, on a smaller scale with the exception of your patterson co-authored book so what, what was the biggest i guess change for you going from where you were publishing to where the warehouse is uh it was it was really it's, it's having a team you know um i have four people uh well i've got my editor uh you know and and his assistant who's who's very hands-on and and she's fucking brilliant uh, but then I've got four people at Crown who are my PR and marketing team. And, you know, all the shit that I used to do myself, they do, you know, and, and there are times where I almost feel bad. Well, because like, like just recently we put together like a street team and um, we're like, you know, we sent some swag and some copies of the book out to people. And, you know, and, and, and so Kathleen, who's like my point of contact on that, like, she's like, I was like, okay, I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. And she's like, no, 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 that's my job. I'll do all that. And I'm like, are you sure? She's like, yeah, like that. It's literally my job. And I'm like, holy fuck, <laughs> you know? And it's, uh, and look, you know, uh, my previous publisher, uh, Polis, you know, they did a lot of good work for me, but, but at the end of the day, it's a one man show and, and Jason Pinter works really hard and he gets a lot more than most small publishers do. But you're also sort of limited just from from a manpower perspective because there's so only so many hours in a day, and so having this team of people that's that's so completely dedicated to the book and like like I I, I feel fucking pampered. It's ridiculous. Like I went to I they, so they brought me out to San Diego Comic Con to do like some panels and some signings and stuff, and it's like like they're paying freight for it and i get there and they're like here's your itinerary and then we're taking all the sci-fi authors from random house out to dinner at this restaurant i'm like fucking christ guys this is so cool you know um <laughs> but 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 i will say uh so um i i went to london already uh i i had planned to go out uh, to visit some friends in glasgow and it was around the time that the british publisher was printing galleys and they were like well why don't we'll we'll, we'll we'll put you on a train to london you can come down for the day we'll send you home through heathrow uh and you could we will go to bookstores one day and we'll just hand out galleys to to, to bookstore owners which is a great idea I, and i was like yes i will absolutely do that and so i spent the day and it was a beautiful day it was like 
I think end of February, beginning of March. And, but, but it was like a nice, like sunny, like kind of warm day in London. And I was teamed up with this guy from the publisher, this nice guy, Tom. And we just, we went to like nine bookstores all over the city and just like, we're shaking hands and like hanging out with people. And everyone was really fucking nice. And the, and they take me out to dinner at the end of the night. And, and it's really fun because it's all the people who are working on the book and then, and, and they love the book so much. And like my, my British sub rights agent is there and, and we had a blast. And at the end of the night, like my hotel was like a, a mile and a half away. And and I I I'm a New Yorker. Anything under three miles to me is walking distance. And and I I wasn't too drunk and it was a nice I'm like, I'm gonna walk back to the hotel. They were like, No, 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 we'll stick you in a car. I'm like, No, 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 I would really like to walk. It's just it's a good night. I I I'm in a city I don't get to visit a lot. I wanna walk back. And as I was walking back, like it, it was one of those moments when, when this whole thing kind of sunk in with me and, and, and I got kind of emotional uh, because it was like, fuck, like there are so many people who are like pulling for me and for this book and, and, and who are putting themselves out there right now. And, and it's just, you know, it's, it's such an incredible feeling. I, I feel so fucking lucky. I wouldn't walk three miles. I'm going to say <laughs> <laughs> I live in the suburbs. We drive everywhere. Well, it's also like I was eating so much food that I kind of needed to counteract it a little bit. <laughs> um, so outside of the the publishing, the actual print book of things, um, there was discussion of like the movie side of things. So is there anything exciting to talk about with that? There, There's some exciting things happening, not all of which I'm sure I can discuss yet. Um, so, so yeah, uh, Ron Howard bought the film rights um, or, or optioned it. And, uh, you know, which it's an option. It may or may not happen. That's just the way these things go. But uh, when I was in San Diego for Comic-Con, they were like, oh, cool. Like, do you want to come up to L.A. and, and like sit down with us? And I was like, fuck, yeah, that'd be fun. Uh, not really thinking that it would be insane to drive from San Diego to L.A. back to San Diego. Uh, because I, because <laughs> what happened was I had a I had a panel on, on the Friday that I was there. I had a panel at 5 p.m., but I had nothing else during the day. So I was like, oh, cool. I'll wake up in the morning. I'll drive up. I'll meet with them. I'll drive back to San Diego. And then and then it kind of sunk in how crazy it was to do that. Um, so I ended up, it was three hours up and four hours down. And by like, by that, you, re I really felt that seventh hour in the car. It was, Ugh, it was a yeah. lot, but, um, and, and Ron Howard wasn't actually there. He's, he's finishing a movie in Georgia right now, but you know, uh, I sat down with my point of contact, uh, this really great girl, Katie and, and a couple of other people. And, you know, and it was just a really great conversation because I, I think, you know, any reasonable person has to go into a situation like this, you know, w w with a big fucking boulder assault under their arm because, you know, Hollywood is Hollywood. Uh, but I just I got a really nice vibe off them. They, uh, they, they they were sort of running me through some of the things that they would want to change, you know, as they were writing the screenplay. And they were all like really smart changes uh they they were really sort of just looking to expand on the world a little bit and expand on the characters a little and it was nothing that was really offensive to me um and they also you know they they asked me if i had any hills that, that i wanted to die on and i told them what my one hill was which i'm not going to say here but you know they they were really receptive to that and that made me feel good too um because in one of the first conversations i had with them i'm like look you know um i i'm, I'm a naturally curious person I, I am interested to learn new things. I'm interested to see new things. I'm interested to be as involved as you feel comfortable with me being involved. But at the same time, I also understand that, you know, you optioned it, you know, you're, you're handling the screenplay, you're handling all that stuff. So if at any point you feel like I'm being a pain in the ass, you know, just tell me to go sit in the corner and fold my hands and I'll do that because it's not my job to tell you how to do your job. 
and and they were like you know we we actually we want you to feel satisfied by this we want you to feel like you're a part of this process and i'm like yeah that's cool and and that's how i felt so far you know like they've been super nice and responsive i mean awesome just the fact that they they return my emails is pretty cool so um <laughs> So yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things that uh, you know, if if nothing else happens, if 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 it completely stalls out where it is right now, I mean, my stock rating went through the roof for a little while and it got me some more attention. And and that's never a bad thing. Nice. Hey, before we let you go, is there anything else uh, you want to talk about or anything you want to mention that maybe we didn't cover? I don't know. Tell me how you guys are doing. <laughs> We're doing I, I've been talking about me this whole time. It's so fucking selfish. We're doing pretty good. Um, <laughs> we're, see, that's how we feel, though. Like when a publisher responds to an email is a little bit like you do. Like we send an email and then like books show up and we're like, this is the best. Yeah. This is the best thing ever. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so sometimes magic does happen. Yep. I, I will say we have been busy this year, my friend. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You just have. Things are. Like, but it's, it's, it's due to the fact that like you guys are putting out stuff for us to read. So like, it's, it's just like, you know, in the past years, it's been like a slog to be like, oh, what, what can we read? But like, it seems like this year there was a serious uptick in like the people that we know, but also the people that we're discovering that are brand new, um, just putting out incredible stuff. So I don't know if it's just that the stars are aligning and we're, we're finding all these good things, or if there's like more stuff or the publishers are taking more risks or something but it just feels like there's a momentum building and that's that's always great no i i totally feel you on that because i i have i just recently was thinking like there are too many fucking books for me to read like i've really been yeah. like i've been struggling to keep up because it's like you know you, you you end up with like a couple of piles uh you know there's the people who are looking for blurbs and you have to try to get to those in, in some reasonable fashion because they're waiting and there's the people who you have to read because it, it, it a little bit feels like homework because like they're a really good friend or or you know you feel like you have to read it because it's from your publisher it's in the same genre and then there's the books that you want to read that it's just your buds that you know like they're your friends and, and you want to support them yeah. and, and, and then there's the pile of just like everything else and um I feel like those those buddy piles are just getting bigger and bigger, and 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 it's not it's not the worst problem to have, but there 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 are certainly times where it's like I've I, I've gone on like really hardcore binges where I'm tearing through like a couple of books in like two or three weeks, and then I like end up taking a little bit of a break because I feel kind of burnt out. Um, I didn't get a chance to listen to to the Wanderers episode that you guys did, but where where did you guys land on that book? Uh, it was is mixed, so uh, I. I, I will honestly say that um, it's kind of weird. So here's the thing of the stuff that we've reviewed for Wendig, um, his Miriam black books were very much their own thing. So it's, it's difficult to kind of weigh them against wanderers. Cause it was obviously two very different kind of um, goals. Um, but I feel like um, it's definitely a, a different step for him. And um, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Oh, but it was mixed. Well, Livius had some other, it was a little mixed. <laughs> let's let's get okay. out. Um, it, it's a little bit what I was alluding to earlier with your characters being a little well-rounded, where I think um, maybe some other authors, not necessarily Chuck Wendig, um, kind of go super black and white. Like, you know who the hero is, and they're infallible, and you know who the villains are, because they all have villain sign on their head. And that's one of the things, like I said, that I really appreciated about The Warehouse was that everybody had a 
everybody had a side and those sides, even if it's just to them were legitimate, but you could feel it reading even going into it. And, and I felt like Wanderers really painted everybody black and white. These are your heroes. These are your villains. There's no in between. Have at it. And, and that made it less enjoyable for me. That's interesting. I mean, and, and I'm not going to reject that standpoint because I, I think it's a legitimate criticism. Um, I, I think from a mechanical standpoint, I kind of understand when you're dealing with such a sprawling cast and, and such a big book, because that was a big fucking book. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think you're, I, I think sometimes your strokes have to be a little bit more defined uh, just to sort of keep people from 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 spinning too far out of control because there might be a point where it's just like there's too much to follow um i really dug it uh i i had meant to i had meant to listen to the episode and then just got jammed up on a few things so but but i was curious to see where you guys landed because uh yeah i I was really surprised that it was like it it was an 800 fucking page book that i read in three days like i I just could not put it down (laughs) yeah well so it actually caused me to go back and listen to our review of his book zeros, which handles some similar topics. It's a, bu- yeah, I don't know if you read it, but like, yeah, yeah, it's a bunch of hackers gathered together to kind of like, and you know, and then there's like an AI involved and everything. And our, our review of that was much more enthusiastic. And so there's something, there's something different with this one where I think that um, for Livius, my overall impression was that like, it was kind of message heavy and, and to be blunt, a little preachy. Um, I, I was very enthusiastic about it and I liked it. I just thought I was going to like it more, which is interesting. And this is nothing against Chuck. I thought, I thought it was very well done and I doubt that there's many people that could do what he did, but yeah, like, uh, re like re-listening to our review of zeros made me realize like, huh, there's something that was a little bit off for this one for me. Interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, but not in like a negative way, just in like it's different. Yeah, you know, I see. I almost came from the because I really like Zeros a lot. Um, Zeros was actually one of the books that made me want to sort of like dreaming a little big, dream a little bigger, and sort of play in like this sort of sci-fi speculative space. But um, mm-hmm. you know, I I just I like Wanderers just knocked me the fuck out. Like I loved it. I uh, like I, I'm I'm trying to get my wife to read it now. She she she's a, a voracious reader. Like she reads more than I do. Um, but she also has like her own list of people that she's trying to get through. And it's also like you look at Wanderers and you're like, this is a fucking brick of a book. But um, mm. I remember like sitting down with the galley and I'm like, man, this is gonna be a tough one. And then like like a few hours later, I'm like, shit, I'm still reading. So was there like you if you loved it? So what was like what are the standout like if you're if you're pitching it to someone? What is it you know that you're telling them that the, was so exciting about it? The the thing that that really amazed me is that it's like it it felt very contemporary in the sense that it felt like it took like every little scary thing that like every scary headline that you read on Twitter and somehow took them all and mashed them all up and made them into a coherent narrative, uh, which I think like like felt a little bit like magic to me, you know. Um, it, it is a message book. It, it is a book that's that, that that has a very strong political viewpoint, and uh, but I also think it's a good political viewpoint. You know, I I, I tend to I, I I like that it really villainized the sort of you know right wing militia fucking asshole pretend army man scumbags. You know, like I'm I'm okay with them being. It's it's, it's something I'm struggling with on the next book because some of the targets I'm going after, you know. 
yeah, you know, you, you, you guys aren't the first to say it. Like everyone, like my editor loved that, that Gibson had so many shades of gray. Uh, you know, a lot of people really responded to that. And now I'm dealing with some people that I'm like, these people don't have fucking shades of gray to me, you know, like they're, I, I can't, I can't write them in the kind of way that I did him because it's like, I can't find that sort of justifying angle. And, um, yeah. And so I feel a little bit of pressure because I feel like I, I did something I did something very very right with Gibson, and so I feel sort of compelled to to replicate it, uh, at least to a degree that you know is going to keep a reader engaged in the story. But at the same time, you know, uh, maybe maybe that's not what I should be doing. Um, I don't know. I, I'm in a weird headspace right now on the next book, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, I thought it was the, I, I think it took a lot of, it, it took a lot of the, the, the fears and, and the frustrations and the anxieties of the current news cycle and made them into a, a really sort of uniquely weirdly current narrative that, that was built around this suit. Like I, I just, I, the, the, the way it sort of built up this mystery of like, you've got these sleepwalkers and why are they sleepwalking and, and, and why are they acting so fucking weird and why can't you pierce their skin with needles and sort of like draws you like it kind of like grabs you by the collar and pulls you through that weird mystery. And um, yeah, 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 I just really dug it. Well, and one of the things I said in the the review is that first chapter, when I read the first chapter, I was like, this is like the best short story I've read in a long time. Because it does such a great job of like setting the stage and sucking you in. So yeah, there's definitely some really great moments for it. Yeah. I, I have some thoughts I'll share with you when we're not <laughs> like, uh, we'll, we'll talk offline. Cause I had a, I had a thought about the ending that I'd like to see what you think about. Okay. Um, are you guys, uh, <laughs> are you guys open to recommendations? We are always open. Always. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a book that came out earlier this year. Uh, American spy by Lauren Wilkinson. Um, mm -hmm. I fucking loved it. Holy shit. I love that fucking book. Like I, it's, uh, it's about a, a black woman in the 1980s working for the CIA who gets, uh, enlisted as a spy. And so it's, it's very relevant in the sense that it's dealing with issues of racism and sexism, but it's also this really great political story, but it's also this really incredible story about a mom and her kids. And, I like I was reading it from I was reading it when I was in Glasgow and London and I was finishing the book on the train ride down which is like a 5 hour train ride and and I, I I by the end of the book I was getting like really worked up and emotional to the point where the conductor was like walking down and 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 I was like the only one on the car so I guess it just stood out more of it but he kind of stops and looks at me he's like are you okay and I'm like this is a really good book <laughs> But uh, <laughs> I, I, I just and it's it's like her debut novel and it's just like, fuck, if like like it's 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 like it, it's it's I think it's up at the level of Le Carre, um, which for when you're getting into like the realm of like political and espionage, like that's no fucking joke. So I would say like if, if you guys are, are ever in a place where you feel like you, you've got some space to fill that that is a, a very worthy addition. I just pulled it up on Amazon so I can remember to look at it. <laughs> yeah. Later. So that Rob could continue to support our overlords. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I will say that I, I wasn't aware of, so it's never occurred to me that as a podcast, we should go to a Comic-Con. But that, that few days that you were there, I was like, oh, Rob Hart's there. And Mark Danieluski's there. And SG Brown is there. And I'm like, None of these are comic books. Why aren't we thinking about going to a Comic-Con? 
because that's three authors that I, I really like and respect and would like to hang out with. You know, it's interesting because the thing about the cons is that they're such a fucking crush. I mean, you know, I, I did uh, Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle and that was a little bit more chill. And there was, you know, like there, there was one bar that most people hung out at. So, so like, like AWP. So it was a little bit smaller scale. San Diego Comic-Con is just fucking lunacy. It's like, it's such a crush of people. <laughs> there, 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 there's, you know, you, you have to pick like two or three things to do because you have to stand online all fucking day. And there are like, there are so many people that I know who were there and I just never saw because you're, you're constantly running around and, and there's constantly shit happening and. You know, it's I don't know. I, uh, I I feel like it would be interesting for you guys to go to a con, I guess, because then you can do some cool like man on the street shit, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, pull some people aside for like, you know, a 10 to 15 minute chat. And and yeah, you might get access to some really cool people that way. Um, but also, I've kind of found that some of the really cool people like they they really only poke their heads up a little bit and then they disappear back into whatever fucking weird fantasy realm mm-hmm. that they live yeah. in. Uh, so sometimes it's just hard to peg people down. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it might be worth uh, worth exploring. I well, so Livius was all excited because he saw these people, and then I don't know if it was you or, or someone else that posted just a picture of the floor on one day and it was just bodies. It was just nothing but like just yeah. a, a swarm of people. And I was like, this is why we're not doing that. <laughs> it's, it's like being in times square and you can't fucking leave. It's like, uh, it was like they, there was, there was uh, the last day of the conference. I, I realized like, shit, I have to get something for my daughter. And I just needed to find like a toy for her. And it was like, fuck. Like it was like Dante's Inferno. Like, I think I descended through all seven <laughs> levels of hell. Like, I was trying to just find, and I ended up finding, like, this weird little fucking unicorn thing. And thank God she likes it. She, she really likes unicorns. But it's like, man, it was, I was getting scared. I was like, someone someone might need to air, airlift me out of here. I feel like I saw an article one time, and this might be, forgive me if this was a hoax, or not a hoax, but like, you know, uh, uh, whatever, not true. Um but I feel like I saw an article one time about specifically San Diego Comic-Con where it was talking about there was a problem with not having enough oxygen because of all of the people. And like there was like problems with like carbon monoxide levels and stuff because of just like the press of bodies and the, the space that they were in and everything. So holy shit, like that article. Yeah. So hopefully I, I would that's not be surprised. Not something that, yeah. Like that. that yeah. Because it sounds... The, like it could happen. So. Well, well, it's also like, you know, everyone kept on telling me like, it's too many people. It's crazy. Cause, cause at one point I was like, Oh, you know, maybe I should bring my daughter. And everyone was like, no, do not do that. <laughs> that would be insane. And I'm like, everyone's just being dumb. Everyone's being silly. And then I got there. I'm like, Oh my God, they were right. You know, <laughs> like uh, I, I showed up and I was like, Oh cool. Like maybe I'll go to the Mar cause, cause I'm a, I'm a Marvel junkie and I'm like, cool. Maybe I'll go to the big Saturday Marvel panel where they announce all their cool shit. And I got in on a Thursday and, and my, my PR person was like, no, there are people already camped out for that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, then hard pass, oh, yeah. not doing that shit. Like 70% of like the, um, like movie news and TV show news. That's anything. And it's no longer just science fiction, like horror stuff comes out of there. I mean, it, it's probably the biggest, like, how do I say this? Like non-literary event of the year, right? So it covers all the all the other non-dramatic genres, maybe. And and all of it comes. Yeah. I, 
you know, to a large degree, it's not a comic con anymore. It's a pop culture convention. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yeah. it's also, you know, it, it's it's a really good hit for authors, especially authors who are playing in like sort of like the speculative sci-fi space. Because, um, you know, like when when I was there, Wendig was there, and Delilah Dawson was there, and Pierce Brown, and Paul Kruger, and and all these authors who were sort of you know writing that kind of stuff, and they were all getting great receptions. And uh, you know, I had, um, you know, granted, like I didn't have a book out, like we were giving away the galley. So people didn't really have the same level of recognition for me, but you know, people were still lining up for the galley cause it's free shit. And, but, but then they would get, by the time they got to me for the signing, they'd be like, oh wow, I read the description of this. This sounds really fucking cool. So we were clearly yeah. sort of like hitting the wheelhouse of the people who were there. So it was, and, and I, you know, I, again, like reading the Goodreads reviews, like they tick up as soon as we come back from the conventions, like people are reading the book and then they're writing about the book and then they're posting it on Instagram and they're telling their friends. And you know, it's a, it's a super effective way to, to reach people. Stop reading the reviews, Rob, stop reading the yeah, reviews. I know I shouldn't do that. <laughs> I know. I know. I guess that, you know what, you just made me think of something that we didn't talk about at all. Like, cause you, you were talking about your team that was promoting and stuff, but like you had a really cool opportunity to do cool promotional swag. Like I saw you had like a, um, like a lanyard and even in the galley that was sent to me, there was like the booklet that was like the employee orientation thing. Yeah. The brochure. Yeah. So I have to say that like uh great job on the promotional push as far as like that like material stuff was uh and and then like there was the images and stuff that you're posting on social media too that were like slogans from the company i feel like that like that push was really good yeah they they put together some really cool stuff for this and um the brochure was really funny because so i i had a hard time visualizing the facility and i ended up drawing a map like literally like got a big piece of like poster yeah. board and just drew it out and when I mentioned this, uh, so so um, my my UK publisher Transworld uh, is an imprint of Penguin Random House, as is Crown. And Transworld and Crown are very buddy buddy. That's part of the reason that I went with Transworld because we were at auction with a bunch of UK publishers, and then it was like they they seem like they they would work hand in hand very well with Crown. Um, so when I was out there, I mentioned the map, and they're like, "Fuck, can you send it to us?" And I'm like, "Yeah." So I sent them a picture, and they were like, "Can we like?" do our own version like like make this look they, they didn't say make it look not bad but that's what they did they made it look not bad and um they were like because maybe we'll do a brochure or something i'm like fuck yeah and then crown was like yeah like we'll we'll get in on that and we'll help produce it and we'll help print copies and so um so i sent them the map and they put it together and it looked great and then they were like you know we, we need a little bit more material for this it would be really cool if you had like a, a manual for how the watches worked and i'm like see funny story I had a, an interstitial chapter about hmm. the watches that I took out because it just felt like there was one too many of those because like there's like the how the, the payment system works and there are some scripts of like videos and stuff like those little like in between chapters. And, and so we agreed to take this one out. So when they asked for it, I'm like, cool, like now I actually get to use it. And um, so, yeah, it, just, nice. it, it came together really nicely. And then the, the social media cards, they, they did a bang up job on and. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I always tried to think creatively with the Ash books and always tried to think of like cool promo ideas. And it's like, you know, uh, these folks are like 10 steps ahead of me. You know, they uh, the, the fucking UK publisher made T-shirts with the cloud logo on it. And uh, like they designed yeah. a logo and, and and like they sent me some of the T-shirts. So I wore one at Comic-Con because I was like, fuck, I can cosplay as one of the characters from my book. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> 
which means you were a security guard right? yeah yeah I, i've got a red one too um but but yeah i just bought the blue one for that time <laughs> yeah it was really cool all right, we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. We know you're heading out um, on tour. Um, congratulations on the book and uh, best of success to you. And uh, don't be a stranger. Let us know next time you want to yeah. chit chat. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. Once again, awesome to have Rob on. It's uh, it's bit we're going through this thing right now, man, where we're getting all these people on, and we're like, why did it take so long in between interviews? So I think we really need to kind of look at our model and see how we can keep the keep the relationships a little fresher. Yeah, a great conversation. I'll be honest, we went some places I didn't think we were going to go, places we don't normally go with like a an author. Like when he um, asked us, but, what's up with us? Yeah, it was a little confusing. <laughs> hey, we asked questions around here, buddy. <laughs> um, but uh, Rob's a great guy. It was a great conversation. And uh, yeah, for sure, more interviews, uh, more Rob Hart, um, which oddly enough, oddly enough, will segue into next week we're doing The Warehouse following week we're going to be doing a short story collection much to Livia's chagrin yeah there aren't a lot of things that would get me into doing a short story collection uh, this is an anthology i shouldn't even say collection this is an actual anthology um but david james keaton who we also haven't had on in forever um is uh, has put together <laughs> god damn it <laughs> tales from the crust an anthology of pizza horror. Um, let me say that again in case you missed that. Tales from the Crust, an anthology of pizza horror. See, so you know and, that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah I, it wasn't there. So there's a, there's a saying. This goes against the saying that like, what is it? Um, like pizza is like sex. Like even bad pizza is still good or something like that? Or is it sex is like pizza? Either way. It's something like that, yeah. I, maybe maybe their next anthology could be like horror sex horror and then they could they could play on that whole like saying. I don't know. I got nothing, man. It Yeah, it's um <laughs> I mean, I'm sure sex horror has been done before. Yeah, that's true. I don't think pizza horror has. I don't know that I'm gonna look into this a lot, but that is edited by David James Keaton. And Max Booth the third, and the reason I kind of segued into that is that there's a story from Rob Hart in there, so it's like Rob Hart month. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He did that. I wonder if because he did that collection of short stories of his own called Takeout. I wonder if there's any Takeout crossover. Like, is he was he just in a food mood when he was writing these stories? Or? <laughs> I'm not sure, but why yeah. don't you read that book too before? And then you could let me know. I'm going to pass on that. We, we, I, I'm taking my foot off the gas a little on the reading for at least a couple of weeks. <laughs> so. Yeah, I thought I was going to do that. And then I read a 650-page book since I read The Warehouse. Dude, so. Seriously. <sighs> Angel's Game. Guys, I'm telling you. What's his <laughs> name? Is it Carlos Ruiz Zafone? It is. I'm happy that I finally introduced you to books that you uh, not only like, but very, really like. Um, fucking love dude that yeah. guy is something else man because i i had a track record at the beginning where i was just recommending stuff that nobody liked so yeah, you know yeah. eight Sorry, years later you figured, it, you figured it out it takes a little while yeah 
So um, that's the next couple of weeks in a, in a nutshell for you. So uh, thanks for listening to this interview episode of uh, with Rob Hart. Um, go pre-order a copy of The Warehouse. You know, minor spoiler alert. You didn't get it from the interview. We kind of like this book. So uh, I think it's going to have a very favorable review next week. So pre-order your copy so you can get it next week. And uh, then go pick up a copy of Tales from the Crust, an anthology of pizza horror. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about this, man. Well, you'll be seeing a lot two weeks from now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Livia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep eating pizza and stuff, I guess. I don't know.